What is up, guys? Constitutional attorney Mike Yoder here. Glad to be with you. Ohio. It's kind of just this like innocuous Midwest state just plopped right there between Pennsylvania and Indiana. But then I looked at the map and I looked specifically where to East Palestine was located. And I was like, ah, there's there's some big geographical angle here. Whether coincidental or not, this is not good. So, as many people know, the Northfolk Southern train crash that happened on February 3rd was just absolutely devastating. The worst part of this is not just the train crash itself, but what our political leaders, and that being DeWine in Ohio and Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, what they did after the train crash. The crux of it, in case anyone is unfamiliar with what happened, when the train derailed 50 cars in total, there were about 680, 690,000 pounds of polyvinyl, 275, give or take, 275,000 pounds of ethyl hexyl acrylate, 2,000, or excuse me, 275,000 pounds of ethylene glycol. There were butyl acrylates. And worst of all was the train 32N that had five rail cars full of vinyl chloride. Now you're going to get mixed reports on what vinyl chloride is in terms of its level of toxicity and danger as a human carcinogen but what's really not in dispute is the danger of what happens when vinyl chloride is burned and there might have been some that combusted naturally but what our leaders did was they dug trenches and set that shit on fire now, for those of you who do not know, or for those of you that are unfamiliar with what happens when you burn vinyl chloride, when you burn vinyl chloride, it will change its chemical composition. And the chemical composition that's changed creates these dioxins that are essentially indestructible. They are not toxins with half-lives they turn into what's called a persistent bioaccumulative toxin or PBT. Those chlorine atoms, when they're burned, the vinyl chloride is burned, operate sort of like a chemical armor that prevents any half-life or any destruction of the compound. And it's fatal it's one of the worst compounds and it can just disrupt the entire human body the question behind this is why did they burn it the carcinogens that got into the water flowed southwest and west and then the air as we know blows west to east so you're getting the toxins in the water and in the air 
And if you overlay a map of the red states the last election, and then you look at where the water from the river basin flows at East Palestine, and you look at the trajectory of the wind, you can see that it is a direct mirror image as to where the toxins released in East Palestine flowed or traveled. Now, I'm not saying there's evidence of this, but I am saying it's pretty coincidental that this spontaneously happens and it seemingly affects everyone in the rural areas of red states. Now, going back to what I said earlier about the memes, they very slowly and very intentionally surreptitiously get us talking or thinking about certain things before something negative happens, the social conditioning aspect of it. If you look back, and what I mean by this, just as an example, if you look back, I don't know, pre-Trump, you look back to 2014, 15. If you were in New York City and you saw a police car on fire in the middle of Times Square on a Tuesday, you would be freaking out, right? You'd be like taking pictures, texting your friends, posting online, calling 911, whatever it may be. Now, you're like, oh, well, I guess Antifa's around or BLM must be pissed off about something raiding Target because you're socially conditioned to seeing this as normal. You'd just keep drinking your latte, walking down the road, head back to your office building or whatever it may be. The notion of these memes where it's just like, oh, thanks, Ohio, or... There's sort of like these quasi thanks Obama memes where it's just shitting on Ohio and then this happens. It almost makes it come off implicitly as normal. It almost makes it come off as like, of course, this happened in Ohio and you don't think much of it because you're just so socially conditioned to people shitting on Ohio for no reason. So, again, I'm not saying that there's any evidence of this. I could be completely wrong, but I do think that it's something to pay attention to and even more importantly as this happened in ohio we're running into the same issue on the other polar opposite end of the spectrum which is these 15 minute cities there's been a lot of talk for years especially the last two about getting out of cities buy guns and ammo buy land Okay, it's all great and all well. But what the scariest part about this East Palestine issue is, is the fact that even if you do those things and you buy that land and you do leave cities, where do you go? Because you could be in rural America, but if you don't have clean air or clean water, what do you do? If you go to a city... You end up in a situation in which they're touting this as some super beneficial 15-minute you know, ordeal where anything that you need in life is going to be accessible within 15 minutes. But in reality, that's not a good thing because attached to this agenda is something far, far worse. And it's not something that can particularly be stopped so when you break this down and you look at what's going on 
you know, what's really the intent behind these 15-minute cities? So just as a precursor, take a listen to this. This is a clip from Glenn Beck on The Blaze discussing these 15-minute cities. And what he says is just absolutely catastrophic. There's already a plan for this. And the World Economic Forum calls them smart cities, which seems great. Progressive urban designers like the UK headquartered uh, ARUP group, they have their own section on the WEF website. They're gaming what smart cities might look like. It's kind of exciting. What would life be like in these cities? Well, here you go. Their plan for 2030, your family will eat zero amounts of meat and zero amounts of dairy. Each person will be restricted to 2,500 calories a day. What? Each family member will only receive three new items of clothing per year. This is on the World Economic site. There will be zero privately owned vehicles. This article on the uh, website actually quotes Klaus Schwab and his... There's already a plan for this. So there you have it. This is on the website quoting Klaus Schwab. No vehicles, up to uh, 2,500 calories a day, three articles of clothing a year. If you don't think that anything that they're trying to sell you is detrimental to you and your freedom, you're out of your mind. And so many people say, well, how are we going to know what's going on? How do we know this? How do we know what our rights are? How do we know what's going to happen? What about this WHO treaty? So let me get this straight. You think that they show that they can get you if you're in rural America. They then want to confine you into these 15-minute cities. Then they strip any notion of individuality or identity or freedom, above all else, freedom. They take your vehicle. They take your clothing. They take your food supply. And then they want to give control of your health to the who. Now, in a turn of events, I do want to mention this. The WHO treaty, I actually have some positive news about. I see a lot of people fearful because February 27th, just yesterday, they reviewed what's called the zero draft, which is the initial framework for this so-called WHO treaty. Now, first and foremost, the term treaty is a misnomer. It's misleading. It gets people thinking that it's an actual treaty, which it's not. Because under the Constitution, first of all, in order for a treaty to be valid, it has to go through the advice and consent of the Senate, meaning it needs two-thirds of United States senators to approve the treaty in order for it to have any force of law. What likely is going to happen is that the United States by and through an executive agreement, which is different than a treaty and does not require the advice and consent of the Senate or a supermajority, is what would enter into this agreement or accord or whatever it may be. But that still does not affect the implications that it would have on the United States. And the biggest thing is that the Supreme Court has actually grappled with 
the issue of international treaties dating back to the 1800s. Um, treaties obviously are only between foreign nations or they're international in nature, same with executive agreements. But the biggest notion to understand is that in order for it to be legally binding, it would have to be what's called a self-executing agreement. And self-executing agreements have a status that's superior to state law, but inferior to the Constitution. So that's sort of where it falls when you look at the list of what law carries the most weight in America under the Supremacy Clause. You have the Constitution as the supreme law of the land. Then you have federal law, then you have state law, and then you have municipal ordinances. A self-executing executive agreement falls beneath the Constitution, but it does take precedent over state law. That's from the Supreme Court. The difference, though, is that this would not be a self-executing agreement. The only way it would have force of law in the United States is if Congress actually passed or adopted legislation that authorized this sort of behavior. But that's another problem too, because the Supreme Court held in West Virginia v. EPA just last year that Congress can no longer delegate its duties of lawmaking and drafting and promulgating laws to executive bureaucrats which they had done for a long time. And what I mean by this is that Congress used to just say, here's the law that we're passing ABC, and it's with the intent to achieve X purpose. And we hereby delegate the promulgation of this act to the Department of Health and Human Services. So in effect, all they did was pass a law saying we need to accomplish this, and then delegated the actual nuts and bolts and the logistical components of that law to the executive. The Supreme Court said that that's unconstitutional. It used to be what was called Chevron deference. And the congressional intent behind the act when challenged, or if there was a challenge raised as to what the purpose of the act was or what something said for vagueness or overbreadth or things of that nature, the congressional intent under Chevron was that with which the executive agency deemed it to be well c congress intended that the executive's intent apply that's bullshit you don't elect bureaucrats you elect representatives and senators they have one job it's to draft the damn laws in this country and the supreme court said enough of this we're not doing this anymore you can't keep punting because then when you go to challenge it, all they do is change the faq regulations surrounding the law and you can't touch them they just violate the law until they get caught, then they change the rules before you can get a court order and you can never hold them accountable. It's just like playing a board game with a five-year-old. They make up the rules as they go. But on a larger and more pragmatic scale, the issue with what I just explained in terms of the difference between treaties and executive agreements, self-executing and non-self-executing agreements, congressional intent, Chevron deference, which is now overruled and that's as a result of West Virginia v. EPA. These type of things, the lack of knowledge about them has turned into what I see as a bigger issue and that's lack of knowledge or information because 
everyone is so terrified that we're somehow going to be delegating our health policy to the who, but they don't have the tools or knowledge and they're not equipped to understand that can't happen. Now, you always have the proverbial pessimist that's going to say, well, what's to say that they're going to abide by the laws anyways? And that's a fair point at this point. I mean, they don't give a shit about the laws or the rules. They don't care to follow them. But in response to that, goes back to the same problem. You don't know what you don't know when you don't know your rights. How the hell are you going to exercise your rights if you don't even know what your rights are? Included amongst your rights is the right to due process, which means that you can go to court, you can challenge it. And despite a large amount of political bias and gamesmanship within the federal courts, if it wasn't for the federal courts, imagine where we would be right now. Federal vaccine mandate blocked. OSHA vaccine mandate blocked. Mass on airplanes, blocked. Employers are starting to be held liable for violating the First Amendment and Title VII. Discrimination cases are starting to gain traction. New York City mask and vaccine mandates both taken down. New York State statewide mask mandate taken down. $10.3 million settlement against North Shore Hospital in Chicago. Employers are running scared because they know they're going to be held liable. My point is, a lot of these big wins, military mandate, blocked. A lot of these big wins, people are just tuned out and they don't pay attention because they're just so bitter. But the courts are our last line of defense and they work. But what point do they serve if the average person isn't even aware of what their rights are? So to sort of cure for this, I said, well... Maybe I should just teach people their rights. I've done it before. I've had over 1,500 people that I've taught about their constitutional rights through workshops online and on Zoom. And I said, you know what? Might as well just do that again. So tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, I'm starting my constitutional law workshop again. It's a four-week course every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. EST where I teach you what the federal government can and cannot do, the different branches, what the scope of each branch is, presidential powers and limitations, the separation between the powers of the federal government and the state government. I break this down, go through it. I go through and explaining what your rights are. I give you the case law, the citations, the case briefs in a easy to digest format, not in a bunch of legalese. I have charts, I have graphs, PowerPoints, outlines. And then on top of it, I record each class and you get a copy of it to watch even if you can't make the live session. So that way you can go back and review these things for a hundred bucks. And that's literally four weeks for $100. And people ask me, why are you charging so little? And I said, I don't know. I think I'm kind of crazy. Facetiously, of course. But I mean, it is insanely reduced because I typically charge an, you know, 600 an hour is my normal standard rate. But I'm doing it for 100 bucks for four hours because people need this information. I need to make a living. And people need this information. So what better way than to educate America on their rights? The vast majority, I would be shocked if anyone listening to this understood what I was talking about earlier or already knew that information, rather, about treaties and executive agreements. The Constitution is relatively complex, but when you break it down, it makes a lot of sense. And that's where I want to educate people. How many people are aware 
of the impact and striking similarities between history and what we're seeing right now. Very, very, very few are aware of the striking or virtually identical similarities between what's historically happened and where we are right now. The years of each case that I cover in this course matters. The year is a pinpoint as to where we were as a nation historically, and it has grave implications on what way the court rules. When going through this, it's important to know things like there's no spending power under the Constitution. It doesn't say that Congress can spend money. There's just a taxing power. How do they spend money then? What about the fact that you only have three fundamental rights in the text of the Constitution? Three. Life, liberty, and property. Most people don't know these things. What if I told you that there was a time in which they valued freedom to contract and the government didn't want to regulate America at all and they wanted capitalism to flourish? The Lochner era. But by 1942, what if I told you that Mr. Filburn, Farmer Filburn, was federally charged and convicted with violating a federal law that put quotas on wheat production on private property? And because he grew wheat in excess of his quota and gave it away for free, he didn't even sell it. He gave it away for free to his neighbors. That was something that Congress could regulate under the Commerce Clause. How many people know that the Commerce Clause is largely in part the most vast and immense constitutional basis with which Congress straps their bullshit laws to? If they needed to justify a law, just look to the Commerce Clause. It covers... And allows Congress to pass laws regulating things in, quote, interstate commerce, as opposed to intra, which means within a state, interstate commerce, including the uses of channels of interstate commerce, the instrumentalities of interstate commerce, persons, things that move in interstate commerce, and economic activity that even if intrastate can substantially affect interstate commerce in the aggregate, or even singularly. Just think about that. That's how Farmer Filburn went down. What if I told you that if you fast forward to 1952, the president tried to seize control over all steel mills and place them in the hands of the Secretary of Commerce because he wanted to prevent steel workers from striking. Does that sound familiar? 70 years ago? Last year, 1952, 2022, the president attempts to control private corporate America. That's what they tried to do with the OSHA bill, but it didn't go through. If anyone's wondering why does the EEOC keep effectively cock-blocking people's ability to access the courts because you have to exhaust your administrative remedies as a prerequisite to filing suit in federal court, well... What if I told you that wouldn't it make sense to, if you're the Biden administration, wouldn't it make sense to say, hey, private America, corporate America, 
we can incentivize you with grants or favorable policies. If you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. So you carry out this vaccine mandate as a corporate or company policy. And then if it's discriminatory, so what? They can't sue you because they have to go through the EEOC and exhaust their administrative remedies and get a right to sue letter. And you only have 180 days from the last date of discrimination to file a charge. You have to wait 180 days for the EEOC to issue a right to sue letter if they actually engage with you. And then you only have 90 days thereafter to file suit in federal court. So break that down, 180, 180, 90. You're looking at, give or take, a little over a year. And if you miss these stringent deadlines with the exception of a few minor uh, changes or variations, there's a few exceptions to it, you can't sue. So if the EEOC is just stalling, that's because they're running interference. But you can't sue the EEOC because they're sovereignly immune. Well, what's sovereign immunity? How can you sue a state or a government entity for violating the Civil Rights Act when the sovereign immunity principles prohibit lawsuits against states, especially for monetary damages? How is that possible for the federal government to pass a law saying that you can sue a state? Most people don't know these things. But it is possible. Why didn't Trump remove Fauci from office? That's another question I get. Well, go back again, 1952, 70 years ago, Humphrey's executor. There was a situation where Roosevelt wanted to remove Mr. Humphrey, who was, uh, had a position on the FTC, and his position was a five-year term, but he wanted to remove him. After Roosevelt removed him, Mr. Humphrey died, and Mr. Humphrey's executive, or his executor, his estate, filed suit against the government seeking entitlement to the remaining value of his five-year salary, and they won. Why? Because the FTC is not an executive. It's not part or within the scope or purview of what the chief executive, the president, is able to reign over. Very similar to the UPS, you know, Postal Service. Or I guess it's USPS. Very similar to what other organization? The CDC. NIAID, these organizations, the FDA, they're not purely executive entities. So Trump couldn't remove Fauci. And if he would have, he would have been impeached because he exceeded his presidential scope of powers. These are things that help you understand and analyze what's going on in the country. What about Alex Jones getting hit with those billion dollar verdicts or whatever against Sandy Hook. How is that constitutional? I thought we were protected against cruel and unusual punishment, including excessive fines. Eighth Amendment, right? Well, under the incorporation doctrine, your federal rights have to be incorporated and applied to the states by and through the 14th Amendment, which is sort of that bridge that takes federal rights and applies them at the state level. But they're not uniformly applied. There's not one sweeping case that says all the Bill of Rights applies to the states. You break it down and you see that there's individual components of each element that have been adopted, but not all. One of which is your federal protection against excessive fines under the Eighth Amendment. That has not been adopted and applied to the states. Just like a grand jury indictment, you have a federal right to a grand jury indictment, but you don't at the state level. The 
prosecutor, the state solicitor, DA, or uh, state's attorney, they're the one that gets to determine whether you're charged or not through prosecutorial discretion. The same thing that they use to decline to charge criminals, which is why you can't sue when you have people like Gascon in L.A. letting criminals run free, setting them back out. And if you look to the DAs doing that for the record, they're all Soros funded. But once you understand the Constitution and you understand your rights, a lot of these big picture items start to make a lot of sense. What about suing? When can you file a lawsuit? Do you have a case? What is required? What are the elements? I go over that. So this workshop is not only exciting and enjoyable for me because I genuinely love teaching and I do it in a way that is broken down in an easily digestible way. I make it funny sometimes and I always tie it to contemporaneous current events. But above all else, you need to know this information. There's never been a time in American history that knowing your rights has been more critical to the longevity of not only your continued success in this country, but the continuation of this country as a whole. So if anyone's interested in this workshop, just hop on my website, yoderesq.com. That's Y-O-D-E-R-E-S-Q.com. Go to the bookings tab and sign up. Like I said, you don't even need to be there for the live session. I'd love for you to be there. You get to ask questions. I make it interactive. But if you don't, you're still going to get a recorded copy that you get to watch after the fact. So keep these things in mind. Highly recommend signing up for this workshop. Over 1,500 people have taken it. I want everyone to be as prepared for what's to come over the next few months, next couple years. Because I truly do believe that we can win this, but it all starts with education. How are you going to exercise your rights if you don't even know them? I appreciate you guys tuning in this week, week three of Legally Armed. It's been a pleasure. This is Mike Yoder. We'll see you next week.